Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Let's read it. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we hear the word imagination, um, the things that come immediately to mind, imagination, uh, fairy tales, children's make-believe, stuff that's not real, never-never land, But in the technical sense of the word, imagination is simply this. It is that distinctly human capacity by which we image anything that is not immediately visible to our eyes. That's distinctly human capacity where we create mental images of things that could be real or or might not be real. So, for instance, if you've lost your car keys anytime recently, you know what you do is you say, well, where, where did I set those keys down last? And you have to create a mental image of your past steps and your past actions in order to find where they might be. 
If you're reading Lord of the Rings, there on the page, black and white, there are these descriptions, um, and they're merely, they're merely nothing more than black and white, and yet they give birth to colorful, uh, a colorful world of Middle-earth and elves and hobbits and dragons and the like, so long as you mentally image them. And then this is also true when reading history. If you're reading about the Battle of Gettysburg, you, know, you must see with your mind's eye. That's the phrase that we use. See with your mind's eye the sounds and the sights and the horror of the battlefield. I mention this because every Christmas, what I try to do in my sermons is to help you reimagine Christmas again. And I was trying to do that last week with Mary. I wanted you, in my description, to uh, see a poor Jewish girl with darker skin and darker complexion, uh, fully Jewish, but living in the region of Palestine, as they called it back then, um, and not the medieval maiden of, uh, of Renaissance art, as beautiful as she is and depicted to us in sacred art. Uh, um, she would have been most likely darker in complexion. Um, and I would say that all of these Christmas pictures that we have, say the one on the front of your bulletin, although I don't think they're, they're not terribly accurate, they nevertheless do serve a good purpose in helping us to imagine certain aspects of the Christmas story. What I would, though, like us to do is to reimagine Christmas even more accurately as we think it actually occurred. And I think the benefit of doing so is, will be that we can get out of the rut of the familiarity of the story as it is normally known, and by God's grace, hear and see the story again through fresh eyes. So verse 1, let's try to do that together. We read about in verse 1, the Caesar. Caesar Augustus, uh, he became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire after a bloody civil war in which he crushed all of his rival claimants. You know, the last of those were, uh, was Mark Antony, who uh, committed suicide shortly after the Battle of Actium. Um, Augustus was the adopted son, you may know, of Julius Caesar. He was the one responsible for turning the Roman Republic into a bona fide world empire with himself as the head of it. And uh, uh, this is all historical. Uh, uh, Augustus, he proclaimed, he said, justice and peace I bring unto the world. And uh, after he had risen to power, he posthumously declared that his father, Julius Caesar, was divine he was a god, which then ergo made Caesar Augustus the son of God. And so he was known as the one who brought justice and peace as the son of God on earth. Poets wrote songs about this new era that had begun. Uh, Augustus was the savior of the world, they said. And increasingly in the western part of the Roman Empire, he was uh, being worshipped as one who was divine. Now, can't you hear something of the, <laughs> the irony of what was going on in the western part of the empire versus what is recorded here in the east? One example of Augustus's political genius is found in our story. Jews, as you probably know, have a deep appreciation for family and family customs and family ancestry. 
So this political strategy of sending them back to their ancestral hometowns for the taking of the census was probably an attempt to make the whole thing more palatable to them. You say, well, why would, the Rome, why would Augustus have taken a census in the first place? Well, there are two reasons. Number one, it was to enlist people into the Roman uh, army. And, and number two, it was to help and assist uh, collecting taxes. Now, the Jews, by virtue of their rel- religious convictions, were not, they were exempt from serving the Roman military, but they were certainly not exempt from the collection of taxes. So they d- deeply resented the fact that their tax dollars were going to, to be spent on the occupation of their homeland. And as we read in the Gospels, they utterly despised their fellow Jews who functioned as tax collectors for Rome. But how could you make it so that they might participate more easily in this process? Well, you would send them back to their hometowns. And this is, funny enough, this is kind of like the very first home for the holidays. Because all of your ancestral family, really, all of your ancestral family would be coming and gathering. It would be a time of great celebration as everyone was reunited. Cousins and uncles and grandparents, they were all together again. We think we see something else of divine irony. And when we remember, where was Joseph and Mary's actual home located? It was way up here in the north, right? Up in Galilee, that's where they resided. That's where they lived. How do you get a woman who is late in her pregnancy from all the way up north down all the way to the south into the city of Bethlehem? I mean, what woman is going to want to take a long journey and give birth to a child in some strange house and not in some place that's not her own? Well, the self-proclaimed Son of God and bringer of justice to the planet in the West— was the one who used his power and decree to bring the actual Son of God into a city in the East, just as Micah foretold it. Back in Jesus' day, the city of Bethlehem was a town, a small town, of less than probably a thousand inhabitants. Even today, it's located six miles south-southwest of Jerusalem, so very close to Jerusalem uh, and as Mary and Joseph ride into town, we can imagine the setting, or we have been told what the setting is, at least in popular um, accounts of it. You know, there's this blistering rainstorm that is pelting them, and Mary is on the back of a donkey, you know, in having regular contractions, or, or even better yet, it's the storm of the century with a blizzard that is striking unexpectedly. I don't even know if they ever get blizzards in Bethlehem, but but isn't that the picture that we have? This, this wide-out conditions, blinding storm. Joseph goes and he knocks on the doors of the city. And no one will answer because it's the dead of the night and it's terrible weather. So finally he sees in the distance the lights of the prancing pony, you know, flickering through the driving rain. And he goes and a stern-faced man answers the door to which he replies, the innkeeper, no vacancy. And he slams the door in uh, his face. Mary's desperately close to giving birth, and so they take shelter in a nearby stable, and there Joseph delivers the Christ child. Um, uh, How do we know this is is not the right way to imagine it? How do we know that this is not the story that Luke describes? Well, even without the whole weather element, if you take that out, 
we know that they probably didn't come to uh, an inn or a pub or a tavern or anything of that sort. Because the word, the typical word Luke would use for a traveler's inn is not the word that's used in this passage. The typical word, pandaxion, is the word that shows up later during Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son, where you remember this, I'm sorry, not the prodigal son, but the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan, he takes the injured man into the city of Jericho, and he cares for him by putting him up in an inn, in a pandaxion. Well, that's not what is used here. The word that Luke uses here is a word that shows up also later in the gospel, but it shows up when Jesus sends his disciples into the city of Jerusalem to find a room for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The so-called upper room, that is the very word that he uses here, a a guest room of, of a sort. The other scenario where Mary and Joseph come into Bethlehem and they're turned away from all of the village doors, uh, turned away in the, with their great need at hand, um, that would have been, this just doesn't make sense. It would have been a colossal breach of Middle Eastern hospitality and it would have brought crushing shame upon the city of, of Bethlehem. It would have never happened that way. So here's what I think, as we re- reimagine the story, here's what I think is happening. I can't say this with 100% certainty, but this is what I think is most likely happening. Joseph's relatives welcome him and his betrothed for the final weeks of her pregnancy. They come to stay in Joseph's ancestral home uh, for the census. And everyone is there. It is home for the holidays. It's packed solid with extended family members. And when the time comes for Mary to give birth... They decide to have her give birth in in the least crowded place in the house, which was not the guest rooms on the upper floor, but it was uh, the downstairs area um, where uh, the the largest unoccupied space that was left in the house. And that place would give Mary the most privacy and peace for the the birth. So look with me at verse 7 then. Verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Um, You know, a manger was, uh, of course, a feeding trough for animals. Why does Mary place him there? Several years ago, I was in somebody's house, and I was trying to think this week whose house it was, and I could not remember for the life of me whose house it was. But what I remember in their living room, they had taken a series of pallets, wooden pallets, the kind of pallets that you would use in a warehouse or uh, the pallets that are used in Costco where you have stuff stacked on top of them. They had taken these old wooden pallets, sanded them and finished them and repainted uh, them or maybe they stained them. And then they joined them one on top of the other to form the perfect living room coffee table. It was just brilliantly done. And uh, it took creative vision to pull that off. And there's some people who have that ingenious ability, right? Just the creative vision to look at an ordinary object and repurpose that object and see it and see how to use it in a new light. I don't have a shred of creative vision like that, but I suspect that Mary did. 
Uh, as I imagine the story, and again, I'm not 100% certain of this, but as I imagine the story, Mary looks at a wooden manger, and she sees there, with a little bit of padding, it's not a nasty feeding trough, but with a little bit of preparation, it is the perfect place to lay her boy when he arrives. It's the perfect homemade crib. And it's, it's a, a woman of, of creative vision who's able to see that. You know, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, woman, I mean, Mary is not this frightened, apprehensive teenage girl, but she is repeatedly shown to us as a heroine of the faith and uh, a very bold and uh, simply an amazing woman, as I tried to communicate last week. And so that's how I see, that's how I see the manger. Did you notice how understated the birth of Jesus Christ is in this story? There are no scintillating details, no dramatic fanfare. We're just told that she gave birth to Jesus. Uh, probably safe to assume that Joseph wasn't the one who, who did it. There was likely a midwife there. The, the people who first saw the, the newborn child were most likely the members of the family that were staying in the household. And we can assume that the number one question they were asking about leading up to the birth, and even at the, especially at the moment of the birth, was what is this child going to be like? What is he going to look like? When the Son of God is born, does he come out of the womb walking and talking? Does he know the Pythagorean theorem? Does he fly with wings like angels? They had to have been wondering those kinds of questions. What is it like when the Son of God comes into the, to this earth? Well, I think we can, we can guess a little bit of what he looks like. I want, you to, I want you to consider this. Maybe you already have considered this, but I think this is so cool. One day, we will see Mary at the resurrection. She will be alive, and we will be alive. And we will see her face to face. And we will also see her son, Jesus Christ. And guess what? Who supplied to him the X chromosome for his humanity? She's not a surrogate mother. She, it's not as though God created this Jesus and stuck her, stuck him into her womb, and she just carried him. You know, he was created from her. I mean, what else are we to conclude other than that, that he will in some way bear the resemblance of his mother and his humanity? Just like you and I, we will bear, when we are resurrected, our own resemblance to some extent, and therefore we will bear something of the resemblance of our parents for all of eternity in our resurrected state. No wonder generations will call Mary blessed because when we look at the Son of God for all of eternity, we will see something of her reflection in him, in, her, in his appearance. Of course, even more importantly, who supplied the Y chromosome? <laughs> like, how did the Holy Spirit uh, do that? How... And what, what does that Y chromosome look like? Somehow, and somehow, it just blows my mind, but somehow, God, our Heavenly Father, who is a spirit, who is not bodily, nevertheless, one must imagine how Jesus Christ, in some way, will bear the resemblance of his Father. Um, and one day, we, we will see it. 
Today we can only imagine, but one day we will actually see it. And that is pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> Ox and ass, before him bow, for he is in the manger now. Where are the, where are the animals there? Well, you know, if you were an ancient farmer, the most valuable asset that you would own would be the family oxen or the family cow, which would be the bulk of your uh, livelihood. And because your animals were so valuable to you, you wouldn't run the risk of allowing the animal to be stolen at night. So they would routinely bring their livestock inside into that, the lower area of the house that was relatively large. And the benefit of having the oxen or the cows in the house was they were a natural source of heat, too. So in the wintertime, you know, they were your, your furnace. Sometimes that inside enclosure would actually be a room in the house, as I was saying. Uh, and in other instances, it could be a cave that was attached to the house. What we know is that some of the, the, the uh, houses in Bethlehem actually backed up to caves. And the Church of the Nativity, which is the traditional location of Jesus' birth, you might know it is built over a cave. So it's quite possible that this original home was built backing up to the cave, and the animals might have been there on Christmas morning. As I said earlier, who were the first people to visit the baby Jesus? We always say the shepherds. And while the shepherds are the first ones recorded to have visited, most likely it was the family. But the family are not included in the story because the family are, are unimportant. The reason the shepherds are so important to us, remember, is because they're the ones who are told of the, of the identity of this child. The shepherds are the one who, uh, who know who this child was. And so the reason that Luke mentions the manger three times in the story is because the manger was a sign to the shepherds that this really is the son whom they are, are, have been told about. And I, I love this quote by Tim Keller. Uh, he, said, he said, don't miss the ordinariness of, of the gospel message and how it comes to most people. You know, the word of God, the word of the gospel comes to us normally in very ordinary ways. And he said, the shepherd's got an angel, but everybody else got a shepherd. <laughs> the shepherd's got an angel who proclaimed to them the good news, the gospel, that a savior had come who would bring peace and justice. It's very easy to pay attention to, to angels, right? But even though the shepherd's got an angel, everybody else just got a shepherd who came and told them the message of this good news. Shepherds, as you may know, uh, they're not scholars. They're not magistrates. They're not even soldiers. They're just ordinary people or even less than ordinary people. They are the ruffian types who, funny enough, shepherds were considered of such a lowly caste in the first century that their testimony would not even be admissible in a court of law. <laughs> but they're the ones who are entrusted with sharing the message of the gospel. And so, friends, you may never have had the chance to participate in the best Christmas play or pageant ever, which I'm sure is a tragic disappointment to you. But every one of us gets to play the shepherd. Because every one of us is that ordinary person who is supposed to be the one who passed the gospel story on to others. Last Sunday, I told you the, the story of a friend of mine who claimed that he had heard from Mary. Uh, and 
upon you know, hearing from several of you last week, that was, prob- that was not the, the wisest story for me to tell. I, and I'm sorry for having done so. It was a story that was better left untold, um, especially given the fact that I love my friend very much, but I'm very skeptical of his claims. And um, I, I realize that was a, a story better left untold. Um, and I do apologize. I'm still fascinated by this woman, Mary. What is her response to all the things that have happened? Look with me at verse 19, if you will. While we ought not to worship Mary, absolutely not. Yet Luke had a very high regard for Mary. Um, I think, as I said, it's very likely Luke had you know, traveled the empire. He, he had gone and interviewed eyewitnesses for all the events that he has recorded in the gospel. And he interviewed Mary because how else would he have known verse 19, what we read there? How would he have known unless he had asked her about this and she had told him? Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She treasured them up. Um, And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard. It's been said that when you treasure something, it's more than just thinking about it. To treasure something is to relish it, to savor it, to keep uh, something alive inside of you. It's like feeding a fire with new firewood. It's making it burn brighter and deeper. And the more wood you throw on it, the, the greater the flame becomes. Um, we're told that she doesn't just listen to the shepherd's message or even think about it cognitively. She treasures it. She fans the flame in her heart so that the message of the gospel burns so deep down inside of her until it means everything for her. And she deeply senses the reality of it all. And so must we. We Go back to the parable of the... uh, of the soils and how some people, they hear the word of God, they hear the gospel and they think about it, but it doesn't go down deep. It doesn't germinate and bring forth fruit. It's only one of those four soils that actually, I would say it's only one of those four soils that truly treasures the gospel and bears fruit for the kingdom, you know, 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold. And so must we. Let me close with this. One of the great controversies in church history occurred in the 5th century when the then Bishop of Constantinople, Nestorius was his name, uh, he raised objections to calling Mary, as she was accustomed to be called in that day, the Theotokos, or Theotokos, the God-bearer. It's a complicated theological argument that they were involved in at that time, but the best way I could simplify it is Nestorius and his followers thought that Jesus was almost like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There was one person, uh, I'm sorry, there were two persons found in one body. So on the one hand, we have Jesus, the human person, who was born of the Virgin Mary. He grew and he became hungry and tired. Um, But none of that could have happened to the divine person, which, I mean, the divine person has no beginning. He's from eternity. He's omniscient. He's, and so you have the, the, doctor, the Dr. Jekyll. The, um, the Dr. Jekyll is the divine person. He heals and works miracles. And the Mr. Hyde is the human person who comes out of the birth canal and learns to speak 
Aramaic phenome by phenome, and he learns to crawl and he spits up. And uh, you have, okay, do you get the idea? You have two persons in one body. Because for, for Nestorius and for many of the early Christian heresies, God just simply can't be born. No, not like that. And Mary cannot be the God bearer because our God is, they said, it's not, he's not a God who can be born. And we are making this crazy claim on Christmas morning that God was born, that he was born. And he was born in order to show you how much he cares for you. I mean, why else would God go to all of this trouble of passing through a birth canal? <laughs> um, if he was a God of complete love, then he could have just pardoned your sins by saying, no big deal. If he was a God of complete holiness, he could have been like Allah and said, obey me, obey me, obey me. But he, was a, he is a God of, of complete holiness and love who came to the earth as a savior to pay the penalty of our sins and who came to the earth because he loves you so much and he wants to get to know you and he wants you to know him. I've said before, the great image, if Shakespeare wants to be known by Hamlet, what does he have to do? He has to write himself into the story. And that's exactly what we claim has happened on Christmas Caesar Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But within just three centuries of his death, the Roman emperor himself became a Christian. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a great battle of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of God comes in such apparent weakness and uh, insignificance and vulnerability, but it is surprisingly mighty. Because God has come to the earth to win the earth, to know you, to love you, and to win you for himself. Amen.